0: And welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by character actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor of SlashFilm.com and the host of the SlashFilm cast. And joining me today, as always, is the man who played assistant state attorney Don Haffman in CSI Miami for five episodes, Stephen Tobolowski. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing, are you sure it was five? Wasn't it six? Uh, well, according see, to IMDb, it's five episodes. But uh... Yeah, see,
1: it's a trick question. I think it was six. But the truth of the matter was, that was so nutty because they wanted to bring me in as kind of a regular recurring role. But the, our listeners may not know how difficult it is to do a courtroom scene. Why would it be difficult to do a courtroom scene, David.
0: Uh, I have no idea. Because
1: you have to shoot from every different angle imaginable. And uh, every time right. you move the camera, you have to completely change the lights. You have to shoot at the uh, table, the defendant and the prosecutor. You have to shoot back at the judge. You have to shoot the witness stand. You have to shoot the jury every time. And, and you know who really had a brilliant way of doing this was David Milch. Uh, when he did Murder One, he had the jury box on roller skates. Wow. So he rolled the jury box around to where the lights were so he didn't have to change the lighting. But um, I ended up not doing that show anymore because you always end up doing the courtroom scene at the end of the shoot because it's so complicated. And with David Caruso, we were often running late by the time we got to that courtroom scene, and they would cut it. And I would say, instead of having a courtroom scene where we determine innocence or guilt, Stephen, why don't you walk down the hallway with David and just tell him how the, how the court thing turned out? So I, my entire courtroom scene was reduced usually to one sentence, going like, "Well, what's his name, Horatio? Well, Horatio, we got him this time." <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> that was it. So, yeah, it was tough. It, when you, actually, David. You know, this is very interesting that you bring this up because this kind of, you didn't know it, but it really kind of fits into the podcast. Because when you were working on Miami CSI, you often had no idea what you were going to end up doing. Because as they ran out of time shooting, they would completely rewrite your scene. Uh, You would either take a scene that was in your office and they said, well, we're losing the light. Let's do it on our feet going out to the parking lot while we're packing up the gear you never knew what you were doing and this is an important thing that people don't understand about acting you know one reason why studying acting at a university will always be misguided is because you inevitably work on scenes by Shakespeare Moliere Chekhov Tennessee Williams Eugene O'Neill Neil Simon all these are authors whose primary aim is to have their material make sense When you get into the professional world, producers, writers, they have no constraints in having actors work on things that make no sense at all. And there are a lot of reasons for this. Sometimes the producers can't help it. Uh, One of the first professional jobs I got in Los Angeles was performing in a Japanese commercial. This was a commercial in Japanese for the country of Japan. And I played the role of Yankee Sailor Man. Now, we auditioned with no scripts. We came into a room with Japanese clients who were in suits, and there was an American casting director. There was a line of white tape on the floor at the front of the room, and we were told to stand on it. The casting director then tossed us a sailor's cap. I was told to put it on and, quote, move around. So I took the cap— And I pretended I was looking into a mirror. I placed it on my head. I smiled in the pretend mirror and made different faces, straightening and repositioning the cap. Then I started walking around the front of the room. I picked up a make believe mop and pretended to mop the deck. And when that great idea ran out of steam in about four seconds, I started singing I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. And I started making muscles. The clients seemed to like the Popeye song. They laughed and started whispering to each other in Japanese, and I got the part. Now, I still had no idea what the commercial was or what I really had to do, and I arrived on the set in Westwood, California. That's kind of the area where UCLA is in Los Angeles. And they gave me this white American sailor suit to wear with the little cap, And in the makeup chair, there were three beautiful models, a blonde, brunette, and a red head in high heels and miniskirts. The director was a Japanese man who came up to me. English was not his strong suit. He said to me, you sailor man, you want the woman, many woman, you chase the woman. Despite the choppy English, I recognized the director was referring to what the cartoon skunk Pepe Le Pew referred to as the international language of love. The director handed me a script, and it went something like this. And I'm not exaggerating. This is kind of the way the script went. We American sailor like girls in big city. They nice and all right, but not like girl in backcountry. country. no. No. But we American sailor like the pretty girls Yes, yes indeed There was absolutely nothing In my training at SMU Or the University of Illinois graduate program That could prepare me for this I walked around on the roof Of the parking lot garage I was already breaking out In a premature flop sweat I tried different approaches to material I thought, what if I was drunk What if I was laughing What if I was Robert De Niro Nothing worked The director then took me to the set and explained the scene. You chased the woman's down street. Tried to grab at them, but they too quick. Then you get by camera and you say lie. The model started running down the streets of UCLA with me in hot pursuit. And it was hard for them to get up any head of speed in their high heels. So I had to pretend to run really slowly. The girls ran past the camera and I stopped to say my line American sailor-like girls in big city They nice and all right And I was choking on the ridiculousness of it all When the director came up to me with yet another hurdle You? Too tall You need to be small to get on camera Can you run smaller? I looked over to the models Who were looking at me with absolutely no compassion at all I'm sure they already had shin splints From running down the hills In their high heel shoes I go, yes, sir. Yes, I will run smaller. So we did another take. I stooped over and bent my knees so I looked like Igor, the hunchback in the Frankenstein movies. And I chased the girls again, and I got to the camera, and I kind of scooted into frame with bent knees. We American sailors like girls in big city. And I started laughing, which perplexed the director. He called cut, and I walked up to him and tried to be diplomatic. I said, "Uh, these lines are a little odd in English. Can I rewrite them a bit? And he said, you say whatever you want because we put Japanese over your face. I then realized I was going to be like a Japanese actor in the Godzilla movies, and that made me feel better. We did the scene again. The models ran. I squatted. I waddled into frame, and at the appropriate height, I started a speech from Hamlet. Oh, that this too-too-solid flesh should melt, thaw, resolve itself into a dew, or that the everlasting had not fixed its canon against self-slaughter. Oh, God, God, that it should come to this. Ironically, it was the only time I ever performed Shakespeare in Los Angeles. Sometimes you're forced into having no idea what you're doing because no one has any idea what they're doing, and a perfect example of this Is when you're working on special effects projects Usually special effects are added After principal photography So no one can really know What they're responding to And I'm always amused When I see New York police fighting A demon from the underworld With spider legs and a dog head And they look kind of concerned But like they do this every day And Who knows, maybe in New York they do But my bet is they were just actors working with a director Who had no idea what the final object of their pursuit would look like My first encounter with special effects acting Was in the movie The Philadelphia Experiment I played Barney, the computer tech guy Who comes out of a truck and sees Quote, the vortex, end quote And I'm supposed to say, oh my god now, I had no idea what a vortex was or what it looked like. It was just another one of those tears in the time-space continuum kind of thing. Stuart Rafel, our director, also didn't have a clue what the final effect would look like. Stuart told me he would talk me through it. And I nodded, and I prepared to step out of the truck. They called action, and I came out, and Stuart started coaching me. All right, Stephen. Stephen, you look up. It's like nothing you've ever seen before. It's big. And you say, I dropped my jaw, and I said, Oh, my God. There was a pause. Stuart was clearly disappointed. Go, Stephen, let's try it again. And action. You come out of the truck, and you see it, and it's big. It's very big. You are terrified, and you say, Oh, my God. It's bigger, Stephen. It's huge. I go, oh, my God. All right, Stephen, Stephen, Stephen. Maybe it's not so big. Maybe it's small. Maybe it's small, but very, very sinister. I went, oh, my God. I gave the director four flavors of nothing. It also was the reason why the more and more special effects become the main course, the less and less affecting the performances become because the actors have no idea what they're doing. Another popular reason for actors having no idea what they're doing is secrecy. Producers now are afraid that if a script of a particular project gets out, it will either be stolen by another producer or auctioned on eBay. As a result, actors get snippets to audition with With what are called sides Sometimes the sides are enough For you to kind of glean who you are And who you're talking to But other times it's hopeless I got an audition With one of my absolutely favorite directors of all time Mr. Michael Mann For the film that became known as The Insider At the time I was going in There was no title, no available script They sent me sides for a part named Clerk, right, that's already a bad sign No first name, no last name The one page of dialogue was incomprehensible I had no idea what I was a clerk of I had no idea what I was talking about Why I was talking about it Or to whom I was speaking In other words, I might as well have been saying Oh my God After debating long and hard as to what to do I asked my agent for a script And was turned down with Hey, no one's getting a script I asked for more information He had nothing And he topped off my frustration with So are you going in or not? And I'm thinking It is Michael Mann I said yes I sat in the waiting room for two hours Trying to manage some sort of performance Out of my lines It was like trying to walk in an earthquake Now for those of you who don't live in California And have never done it Let me explain to you You can't You cannot walk in an earthquake. When the rumbling starts and your house starts to shake and the floor starts to buckle and you want to run to safety, you quickly realize that the only way you are able to walk at all is by the fact your feet are in physical contact with the ground. You remove that contact, you are not going anywhere. And it's the same thing when you try to act without knowing who you are or what you're doing. You go nowhere. I got called in to meet Michael. He asked me to have a seat. He turned on one of those little video cameras to record the audition. He said, well, let's read the scene, shall we? I said, let's not. He looked at me with a bit of a smile and asked, why not? I said, because, Michael, I don't have a clue what's going on, and it would be a huge waste of your time, my time. (laughs) He chuckled. He said, well, should I explain what's happening? I said, I have a better idea. Let me read the script And then he said a little defensively, no one has a script. I said, I understand, but let me explain it this way. How would you feel, Michael, if someone said they wanted you to direct a suspense movie and they wanted to know how you would do it, but they refused to tell you who the main actors were, what era the movie took place, and what your budget was? You would probably say, no can do. The only thing I have to offer as an actor is my point of view, and I have none when I have no point. And I have no view Michael pulled out a script And a contract from a drawer In his desk The contract stipulated that if I told anyone About the contents, the character The story of the movie, I would be murdered And then sued I signed it I went home, I read the script I came back the next day Michael asked me what I thought I said, this could be the best script I ever read And then he smiled so I guess I said the right thing Michael now had me read three different parts, which was easy to do because I knew who all the people were and what they wanted. I handed the script back to Michael with a sigh of relief, and I eventually got cast in the movie. That was a happy story. There are many, many unhappy stories, too, that all revolve around an actor not having a clue as to what to do. I have not done on-camera commercials since I started doing movies. I got a phone call from my commercial agent, and she said, Stephen, I know you don't do commercials, but this is a big one. You have to go in on it. It's an on-the-air commercial in print for Universal Theme Park Orlando. It could be multiple spots. This could be a seven-figure job. I hung a U-turn over my convictions and headed over for the casting office. When I got there... I saw every bald-headed, middle-aged man I had ever known in Hollywood. There had to be 50 guys waiting, and they had to have been waiting forever because most of them were asleep or nodding off. One guy was in the corner snoring. This was not a good sign. The casting director ran up to me and said, Stephen, I am so glad you decided to come. I said, hey, my pleasure. Is there a script or sides? No, she said, but we do have a storyboard on the wall, and we will want you to improvise. I said, absolutely. I gestured to all the guys sleeping in the folding chairs around me. I said, now, look, I don't want to be a pain, but I just found out about this audition, and I do have another meeting in a couple hours, so is there any way I could kind of get in sooner rather than later? She was very apologetic, and she says, yes, yes, we'll get you in right away. Just let me know when you're ready, and I'll get you in to meet Nigel, our director. Great. Thank you. I walked over to the storyboard on the wall, and and for the people who don't know, you probably do, a, a storyboard is kind of the story of the commercial or movie comic book style, a frame by frame description. And this hieroglyph I was looking at showed a family flying to Orlando Universal with the little boy looking out the airplane window, very excited. In the seats next to him were his mother and his father, both asleep. Asleep. I look back at the waiting room, and I realize all these guys there had not been waiting forever to go in and see Nigel. They were practicing. They were practicing being asleep. I told the casting director I was definitely ready to see Nigel She took me in The room was empty except for a first, a first class plane seat A video camera and Nigel Nigel was about 30 English with dirty Keith Richards hair Skin tight torn t-shirt and leopard print tights He got up grandly from his desk Hello! Stephen, I absolutely loved you in Groundhog's Day, one of my favorite films as a child. And your character was outrageous. Shall we have a bit of fun? Uh, he sounds a little like Stewart, doesn't he? Yeah, I guess so. I said, You bet, Nigel. He goes, All right. You strap yourself into the hot seat. <laughs> well, I did. I buckled myself into the seatbelt. Nigel continued, Here's the backstory. You are on a family trip to Orlando. You are a businessman and you have saved up for business class seats for the family, maybe even first class. Your little boy is so excited. He's about to pee his pants to get there. And you've just had a nice big meal, a glass of wine. The movie is starting and you have your headphones on and you decide to take 40 winks. Pause. Uh, Nigel, uh, I'm asleep. Asleep, right, asleep Shall we have a go at it? I, I go, right Now Now I'm totally asleep Yes, dead out, ready I assumed an unconscious posture As Nigel called out, action And I stayed unconscious for a few seconds Before I felt woefully inadequate And wondered if I should snore or drool Or worse, should I steal some of the stuff I saw some of the other guys practicing in the waiting room Nigel called, cut I opened my eyes. I saw he was clearly disappointed that I didn't offer up some sort of comic gym. He said, Shall we try another? Do something totally different this time. I swallowed and said, But but I'm still unconscious, right? Right, right. Dead out. Dead out. I nodded and wondered why I had not gone to law school like mom wanted. He called out, Action! And the only thing I could think to do... Was to snore like Shimp in the Three Stooges So I started going (groans) I did not get the part Nor was I ever invited back to that casting office Reinforcing what I always suspected in Hollywood The consciousness was a matter of perspective If you take sci-fi secrecy and calculated confusion to the furthest intersection on the horizon, you end up with the television series Heroes. I was thrilled to be a part of it for season two in the role of Bob Bishop, the man who could turn things to gold, but for the life of me, I still have no idea what I was doing. And truly, I don't think anyone else had any more of a clue than I did. I came to believe that the madness was the method. Being on Heroes was like being in one of those comedies where the leading man wakes up hungover with a woman in his bed and a walrus in the bathtub, and he shakes his head and says, I did what? It was certainly the biggest production I've ever been a part of, and the show took over a good portion of an entire studio in Hollywood. We were using seven different sound stages, and on any given day, we'd be working on three things at once with three full-time crews and directors— Two directors would be shooting different episodes, and another director would be shooting special effects for past, present, or future episodes. And sometime we would get a massive rewrite for an episode we thought we had finished a month ago, and we would reshoot that while we were shooting the current episode that may have also been rewritten to contradict everything we were reshooting in the previous episode. Got that? I came to the conclusion that it was all right if I didn't know what I was doing. I decided that the show required a very young brain to absorb the rapid plot twist and completely liquid mythology whose strength rested in the fact that it was completely incomprehensible. I still have dreams like the victims of post-traumatic stress syndrome that they get with new rights coming in saying they want to reshoot my death again. But just like a storyline from Heroes, I've gotten ahead of myself. So let's... Let's switch to black and white And go back in time In the beginning There was the audition I had three scenes to read In front of the producer's Uh, Now, this time, I couldn't get the script in advance because the show was such a phenomenon, the executives were afraid future episodes would end up in the hands of a spoiler. Spoilers are people whose sole mission in life is to gain notoriety by revealing the punchline of someone else's joke in hopes of being thought of as funny themselves. I went in and I read three Bob and Dr. Suresh scenes for the seven producers. The first time through, I thought, it, I thought I thought I did pretty good. I thought it went fine. The producers nodded and looked at each other. And then Jeff Loeb asked me if I could do it funny. Now, I had no idea what that meant. I, and I didn't have a clue as to what I was doing or who I was talking to. So I just... Talk faster And I ad-libbed to Dr. Suresh They looked like he had a little food on his jacket And I brushed it off with my hand Examined it and nodded Just as I thought, Gorgonzola The producers smiled But they were profoundly confused Then they asked me to be threatening So I threw a chair That threatened them for sure Then they asked me to be mysterious Whatever that is Side note Try being mysterious sometime on your own and see what you end up with. At best, you'll look like the bad guy in the old man from Uncle Show. If you do it at work, your boss will think you're stealing office of supplies. Two days later, I got the news, no, I didn't get the part. And I was depressed. Then the next day, I got the news that I may get the part after all. Then the next day I get the news that they were unsure as to whether the part was going to be Robert Bishop or Roberta Bishop, and now they were looking at women for the same role. Now I was depressed and confused, and it never changed, even after the next day when they told me I got the part. When I arrived for my first day of work, I was taken around and introduced to various cast members in the makeup trailer. Allie Larder and Hayden were in the works. Hayden was swearing she would never wear a cheerleader outfit again. Milo dropped in to show that he was having a wig fitted and he wanted to know what he was going to wear for a future episode. I had never seen so many attractive people in one place. I I was in a sort of sugar shock. If the heroes was a garden, I was the potato. I figured it would take a year of therapy to get over this blow to my self esteem. And this was before Kristen Bell was brought into the cast to be my daughter. And I hurt my brain trying to imagine the genetic makeup of Kristen's fictitious mother. And I fantasized as to how lucky I must have gotten at least once. I met Rama Ramamurthy, who was Dr. Suresh, in my audition. And I realized that Sindel and I were in the same movie a couple years before, and I believe the final name of that movie was Blind Dating, directed by James Keach. Now, we didn't have any scenes together in that movie, but I had met him in Utah when we were shooting, and it did make me feel less nervous, and we had some common ground for conversation. I also knew that Sindel was a terrific actor. He had just been a production of the Royal Shakespeare Company in London, and I don't know if everybody knows this, probably, he is a world-ranked tennis player. Hmm. Everyone in the cast was very warm, and they asked me what I was doing on the show, and I answered I had no idea. And Greg Grunberg laughed and said, get used to it. They welcomed me aboard, and I went to my costume fitting. The costumers also had no idea what I was doing, which was comforting, and I began to sense a sort of consistency. They were confused because they had not seen the latest version of the script, and they couldn't outfit me properly because they weren't sure who my scenes were with because the color of my outfits were dependent on the hair color of whoever I was playing opposite of. Sound confusing? Here's how it works. Brief tutorial. Modern special effects are most commonly some form of composite shot where they add something in the foreground or the background of the frame in post-production. Uh, Here's a Deadwood example, Uh, the wide shots of Deadwood. They erected a giant green screen that was five stories high, 300 yards long at the end of Main Street. In post-production, they added South Dakota on that screen so you would see the Old West instead of the 14 Freeway. The reason special effects experts choose blue or green as the color of their screens is because these are the two colors that are not found in human skin tone. When they make the composite shot, anything in that color becomes invisible, leaving the added effect of the vortex or a spaceship or the city you're flying over, whatever. In Heroes, almost all of my scenes had some form of special effects in them. That meant the backdrop would be a blue screen. Unless the person in the scene with me was a blonde. And then they would have to use a green screen as a backdrop because the cinematographer had determined that a green screen works better for blondes after the special effects were added. Consequently, my clothes would have to avoid shades of blue or green accordingly or I would be in danger of vanishing. Unless they wanted to rewrite the script again and add that as one of my powers, which could have helped me survive season two. After my costume fitting, I ran into one of our director producers, Alan Arkosh, great director of the Ramones, and I asked him who Bob was. And he said, think of Bob as a good guy who may actually be a bad guy, who's pretending to be a good guy, who in essence is a bad guy who makes a turn on the show to be a good guy. Alan was laughing, but I knew he wasn't kidding My first day shooting, I had to use my superpower, turning something into gold. This time it was a spoon for the first time. And Greg Beeman, another executive producer and an extraordinarily fun director, came up to me and asked me very seriously if I had ever had superpowers in a movie. I thought back at my resume and I told him I had been a ghost before. He shook his head, no, no, that's a different thing. He said that we have evolved the format of the show. That a hero has to show a bit of exertion whenever they use their power He said, it has to be more than a burp, but less than a crap I said, okay Again, these are things they just don't teach in the universities I shot four scenes that day And I felt like I was on my way to understanding what my role was on the show Bob Bishop was a moral relativist He was a man with a great deal of knowledge who had always been working behind the scenes for the greater good. But clarity like that was not to be. During the next episodes, I tried to engage Dr. Suresh in finding a cure for the deadly Shanti virus. Then it was implied that I was using the virus as a weapon. Then it was implied I was trying to isolate the virus so it wouldn't fall into wrong hands. Then it was implied I was developing new strains of the virus in a secret lab. I couldn't keep up with it. Every week I had an apology scene of sorts where I expressed my regret to Dr. Surash, then would encourage him to keep working for me. And he would always get angry. Sometimes he would throw a chair. But in the end, he would agree to keep at it, whatever at it was. I've always felt that one of the most influential people of the modern age that rarely gets the credit is Aristotle. Aristotle was influential because he was Alexander the Great's teacher, and everywhere Alexander conquered adopted the ideas of Aristotle. Later, the Romans took over these lands and also spread the ideas of Aristotle, and those ideas were spread to us without us really being aware of it. And one of the biggest ideas of Aristotle that we take for granted that is inculcated into our brain matter is that every story has a beginning, middle, And an end Three acts Introduction Conflict Resolution It seems simple But if you look at literature written before Aristotle It goes every which way I began to recognize that the writing for heroes And in fact other programs that have that supernatural bent to it like Lost Is that they don't follow Aristotle They continually redefine Act One. By introducing new characters New rules to play by New emotional geography And new objectives And when they reach Some sort of conclusion Like a secret code Being discovered Or a hero getting killed We soon find out That the code didn't work Or the hero wasn't really dead And it becomes Just a further extension Of Act One There was an article That was sent to me From New York Magazine That had my picture And a caption Saying Meet the new face of evil On Heroes Well, that was news to me I wasn't sure what I had done to be evil yet As far as I was concerned, I was still lost in Act 1 As the episodes rolled on, I felt like my real job on the show Was creating the illusion that there was a plot And I would continually apologize to various regulars And try to convince them to work for me on a project That never really ended up existing And by the time it was revealed... That that storyline wasn't going anywhere We were, we were on to the next Now I don't mean this as a put down at all It was all part of the methodology of creating the show And keeping it surprising I also want to make it abundantly clear The people working on Heroes Like Deadwood Were the sharpest knives in the drawer They were remarkably talented They had to be because the process was so chaotic The main difficulty I had on the set Is that all of the actors were low talkers They would say things like There's a storm brewing How can I trust you How can I trust anyone And we would rehearse the scene And I have no idea when my cue was coming up And I kept interrupting the dramatic monologues By my colleagues with Eh? What? What was that? My turn? My turn to talk? It really killed the dramatic effect I knew my days on the show were numbered when during episode 9 I asked for my chair to sit in And they gave me a folding chair with a piece of masking tape on the back With the word cast written in magic marker on it Tim Kring, the executive producer, creator of the show, called me at home to give me the news They were killing me off in the next script and, and I have to say it was embarrassing It was worse than a breakup When the word got out It was like I had the measles No one wanted to get close to me Zachary Quinto Who plays Sylar Murdered me in my office But before he killed me He paralyzed me with his mind And delivered a sarcastic speech Which I must say seemed unnecessary And the whole time I was pretending to be paralyzed I was thinking that it looked like Zachary got his clothes from Bloomingdale's And then my mind went off on a tangent Imagining Siler shopping for his jacket at the mall And I wondered if he was polite to the sales staff Or sarcastic If he paid in cash or credit Or if he just paralyzed him with his mind And shoplifted After the speech He sent some sort of a ray out with his mind To cut off the top of my head And then he ate out my brains The scene took half a day to film And most of the time I was covered in cairo syrup and food coloring at the end, Zach came up to me with enormous concern He's such a dear guy And he got me out of the office chair and said, Stephen, Stephen, I'm sorry Are you alright? And I said, Zach, I'm fine You didn't really kill me You just made me unemployed I figured I was done with heroes at that point But true to the show, I got a call four months later That they wanted to reshoot my death The problem was, in the interim I had a terrible accident, for real And I broke my neck I was in a brace But never let it be said that a near-fatal injury Stopped the production of a television show They asked me, seriously, what I could do without the neck brace And of course I told them I could die And they said, yeah, yeah Other than that, if we were to remove the brace for the shot What would be possible? And I said, well, I wouldn't be able to walk I wouldn't be able to turn my head. In fact, I couldn't even support my head. Uh, I tell you what, I could sit in a high-back swivel chair and use the back of the chair for support and talk. That's it. I could do a scene like Stephen Hill does on Law & Order. But absolutely no one can touch me. No one could do makeup or hair. And for the application or blood or anything else, I would need the neck brace on. So they wrote a scene with me in a chair. We rehearsed it with me in the brace I removed it when they said action I handed it to my son Robert Who I brought to work with me That day he was sitting under the camera We shot the scene They called cut My son helped me put the neck brace back in And poor Kristen Bell was so terrorized About working with me for fear She would vibrate the chair too much And kill me I could hear her heart beating standing next to me But That is the version of the scene they used Kristen terrified Me working with a broken neck Without my neck brace As I was leaving the set Greg Beeman came up to me at the end And thanked me for coming in and shooting In spite of everything And he said hey remember It's heroes Don't be surprised if they call you back For more episodes And I was thinking only in Hollywood Only in heroes Could they kill you Cut off your head Eat your brains and say with a straight face, you may be back.
0: That was Lost in Act 1, a series of stories as told by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, really interesting stuff there about heroes. Uh, and Unfortunately, I think uh, that show got a lot worse after you were killed off. I think there's a direct correlation there.
1: <laughs> oh, I don't think so. You know, I think, you know, I read the blogs, some on it, and some of the fan base, for a period of time there, it got a little upset because the show was kind of stuck in act one. They felt that uh, the first season there were a lot of consequences and the second season they watched it with expectation that it was going to move forward and then they just added a lot of characters and kept redefining act one and the people kept feeling like I'm dissatisfied. But I have heard from several uh, heroes, aficionados that the show has gotten very good this last year or so.
0: All right. Well, uh, people can write in and decide for themselves. Speaking they can of decide for themselves, and by of, the way, by yeah. the way,
1: I have gotten emails about uh, mistakes I made, and I blamed it on you, David Chen, about uh, my Greek, uh, my Greek philosopher references. So, if anybody has a problem with what I said about Aristotle, please complain
0: to David Chen. All right. Well, you know, speaking of complaining to us, how can people write to us, Stephen? Uh, they, that's, your-
1: they can write to me and complain. That's right. To Stephen Tobolowsky at gmail.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N, T is in Tom, O-B is in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y at gmail.com. And also they can reach me at Twitter at twitter.com slash Tobolowsky, right? Ex-
0: yes, that's absolutely correct, sir. They can also reach me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen S-K-Y. And you can also email me at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Uh, and you can find my other podcast that I do, the slashfilmcast at slashfilmcast.com. So uh, that's going to bring us to the end of this episode. Before we go, I want to say, uh, if you guys have a chance, please head on over to iTunes, leave a review for the Tobolaski Files, because uh, we need your help to help spread the word about the show. And I really appreciate any uh, – I've seen people writing articles uh, about the show. Have you, do, do you, have you seen uh, – we had a couple of uh,
1: – I w- I was thrilled. Uh, the one in Time Out Chicago, ooh. that was great.
0: Yes, that was fantastic. Love and, it, uh, love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, and also, I think we're in the Dallas Observer, right?
1: Dallas Observer, that's right, yes.
0: Yeah, um, so – Dallas Observer is the hepcat newspaper in Dallas. Yeah. Uh, i'm not entirely sure what you mean by that but that sounds really cool
1: it's like the the paper kind of like uh village voice in new york la weekly in los angeles it's kind of like got all the hep writers hep stories theater reviews things like that it's the it's a good newspaper to be in
0: got it uh well a big thanks uh, to jessica johnson who wrote that time out chicago piece and uh, and also to the person who wrote that Dallas Observer piece, yes, uh, whose name I'm rapidly looking up right now. Uh, but uh, if you'd like to write about the Tobolowski files, you are more than welcome to. Um, and just uh, email me at slash at gmail.com or email Stephen, and uh, we'll uh, maybe we can give you some background info, a quote. Or something like that, uh, we'd love to help you out to spread the word about the Tobolowski files. Robert Wolonski, by the way, is the person that did the Dallas Observer thing. So thank you guys so much for for spreading the word about the Tobolowski files. All right, guys, that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode. Uh, tune in next week for another set of stories by the great Stephen Tobolowski. <laughs> and uh, thanks a lot for listening. We'll see you guys later. <laughs> bye <Bye-bye>.
1: bye. <laughs> Also awesome. my share